Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Hi, this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're going to have with us Josh and Michael Butler with Footprint Capital, a boutique investment banking firm based in the northern central Ohio area. In the first transaction that Michael shares with us, he talks about how an orthopedic footwear company was able to weather a series of unexpected events and failed closings and complete shutdown during the pandemic to successfully exit their business. The big takeaway from this transaction is how they were able to minimize the impact of these unexpected events and how they actually were able to exercise more control than you might think. Then Josh shares a story about how a seller went from a do-it-yourself mode to engaging a professional advisor to facilitate their exit and how this decision actually ended up adding an additional $20 million value to their exit. You're not going to want to miss how this transaction unfolded and how this extra $20 million was able to be created. Next, Michael shares how a pet insurance company was able to make a strategic decision early in the acquisition process that allowed them to entertain other offers during the due diligence process, and that this was a factor that enabled them to substantially increase their exit price. Now, there's a golden nugget here that I want you to listen for in this transaction of how they were able to pull this off, not signing an exclusive agreement during the due diligence process, something that you'll want to pay particular attention to. And finally, in one of the more unique stories ever shared here on the podcast is how knowing how to roll some additional equity into a new entity after the acquisition has been made, especially when management stays on to run the company, typically in a private equity situation, they want existing management to stay on, and how they were able to turn a 1x investment into a 10x return in just a few short years. You'll really want to listen and take away some of the insights on how you'll be able to have this huge second bite of the apple, which is often referred to as the second or third sale of a company where you have equity invested in it. You're really not going to want to miss this particular story of this episode. So we'll see you on the podcast. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast, and today we're here with Michael Butler and Josh Curtis. Michael, would you take a minute to introduce yourself, and uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your firm, where you're located, and then have Josh introduce himself, and then we're going to jump in and chat about some of your transactional stories you've been involved with over the years, and get some great takeaways for our listeners here on our podcast. So, Michael, take it away. Great. Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for having us on today. I appreciate it. I've been a big fan of the show. I really enjoy it. So, uh, it's great to be be recording one. Um, Yeah, my background uh, prior to to being in in, uh, investment banking is a little bit varied. I started out as a public accountant uh, working for one of the big eight firms at the time, now big four firms, uh, Ernst, and both our audit and consulting arenas. I moved into then being a chief financial officer for a uh, manufacturing and distribution company. And we did a couple of acquisitions uh, back in those days and we actually got acquired. I actually worked then for the acquiring company for a number of years uh, when I was finishing my MBA and then uh, joined a a large uh, financial services organization for a number of years. So I was a senior executive in a company and we did a number of acquisitions in that role. Uh, so I've been on several sides of the acquisition table, both as a buyer and a seller. Um, also have business you know, experience as a small business owner as well. But then uh, been, then I spent a period of time uh, in venture capital. So I was a partner in a Midwestern-based venture capital firm 
that was investing in early stage technology companies. And we bought and, and exited several companies there. And then ultimately uh, found my way to uh, Footprint Capital, uh, joining Josh and his team. Uh, and they've done a great job in, in the Columbus area uh, of becoming, uh, you know, kind of a leader and uh in, in in the ohio and surrounding states area um and also other wider areas uh in the uh, you know boutique investment banking uh, serving the lower middle market both buyers and sellers of businesses josh is probably in a better position to josh is the the founder and managing partner of footprint so he's probably in a better position to, to give the background on footprint so footprint was founded in uh in in january of 2014 and, and we were really the outgrowth uh, of a cpa firm uh, and an investment banking practice that I was heading up there. Uh, you know, we're based here in the Midwest. We we have offices in Columbus, uh, Cincinnati, Toledo, and Cleveland. But we do deals really throughout North America. We've done transactions in Canada, uh, you know, throughout the United States. Been as west as uh, west and north as Calgary recently, and as south and east as Southern Florida. So. Um, re- really span spanned uh, North America. Uh, we're really focused on working with founder owners or owner operators. Uh, those are the bulk of our clients, uh, individuals or partnerships that, that own and operate companies. Uh, and we're really focused on providing a high level of touch to those clients, uh, helping them through uh, a sale transaction, maybe making an acquisition on the buy side, uh, some sort of a, a partnership buyout, maybe raising capital, things of that nature. Uh, in terms of my background, I started my career in commercial banking. Uh, so grew up as a lender, uh, moved to investment banking about 15 years ago, and really have been advising business owners since. Uh, similar to Michael, I've, I've also been an owner uh, of a business and, and continue to be uh, uh, an investor uh, in companies as well. Well, that sounds great. Varied background, great partnership, it sounds like. Uh, and obviously, you probably have a lot of experience in different types of companies from smaller to the larger acquisitions you've been involved in. So why don't we just roll into some of those discussions and kind of peel back the onion and how those transactions evolved and pull out some key takeaways for our audience here and how it might impact their business as our different entrepreneurs and founders really start thinking about their exit. So, Michael, why don't you get started here and chat about a transaction and tell us a little bit about the company, what type of company it was, and what was the motivation for positioning the company to eventually exit? Great. Yeah. Well, part of what we do with business owners is certainly understand their motivation behind selling and uh, you know why they're why they're looking to uh, get out of the business. In many cases, it's simply uh, they've been at it for so long and time to retire. This business was started by an individual about 18 years ago, and they were in the uh, the manufacturing and distribution of prescription foot orthotics. You know, sort of the orthotics that you put in a, a tennis shoe or a dress shoe, and uh, their customers were, in fact, the prescribing physicians and foot doctors that uh, helped people, um, you know, you know, take the, uh, uh, the cast for an orthotic and send it into this organization to be, uh, be developed. So out of curiosity, do you have any idea how the founder and the people that got the company started got into this type of business? Were they foot doctors? I think it was just one of those, uh, this, this gentleman was not a foot doctor, but he went on to be, uh, become certified as, uh, as an expert in the field. But, uh, but basically, it was really one of those situations where it's one of those jobs he fell into as a young man and really liked it and uh, thought it would make a, you know, a, one of those things where sometimes you start and you never realize it's going to be your career. And that's what happened to him. He, uh, uh, one thing led to another. He partnered with a couple of physicians to get the company going and did quite well. And as a result, uh, just kept it going for, uh, for uh, the, the 18 years that he had done it. And what was really the motivation around deciding he wanted to step away from the business since, since he obviously was doing very well financially? Yeah. And actually, he was kind of a younger guy as well. He wasn't in his 60s yet. And so uh, so that's a lot of times we'll, we'll ask those questions. You know, what, what's driving you to get out of this? Do you see, you know, obviously, you don't want to hear an answer like the business is going through turmoil and and so on. But he just wanted to do some other things in his life. He'd become interested in real estate and wanted to do some other type of investing. So that uh, was his primary motivation is to uh, uh, do some other things with his uh, his working career. Um, so that's what got us to the stage of uh, him having that consideration. And how did the deal unfold? 
Yeah. So what ended up happening? We, uh, you know, the first thing we always do is just to make sure that we get a good understanding of the business, the motivations, all those kinds of things are the other, the good, bad, and the ugly of the business, of course, just so we better understand it all. And, uh, you know, we start proceeded to go through a normal process of taking the company to market, identifying buyers and so on. Uh, but in that process, one thing we're always aware of, there's, there's a, a term out there that I'm sure your, your listeners have heard called deal fatigue. And in deal fatigue, you know, a, a process, you know, takes a lot of time, effort, and energy. And a result of that is, uh, you know, it can become very tiring and uh, it can challenge you, uh, certainly when you get close to the end, particularly, uh, to how long you'll hang on. And, and if, you'll, if you've got the kind of uh, commitment to getting the process completed uh, properly. So to fight that, one, a lot of what we do is we spend a lot of time up front with our clients at getting them to share a lot of information. We prepare a, a virtual data room, which is really a, a secure website where information is stored. And that's we, we do a lot of that work up front before we even start to take the company to market. So I'd like to just pause here for a minute and talk a little bit about this virtual data room. Not a lot of our podcast guests have addressed this issue, and it is such a great idea, but something that I think is somewhat underutilized in the transactional space of being able to put up for viewing instead of sending things back and forth via Federal Express or email, right? which is kind of unsecure, confidential and proprietary information that's being shared in the digital space. Talk a little bit about the type of documents that you share and that you want to be able to provide access to for a buyer and share a little bit about how buyers perceive that. And if it's a real plus for them or just doesn't really make any difference, just give us an insight into the mentality and the psychology around having that information available before it's even being asked for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what we'll do is we typically have a an initial data request list that we'll share with our, our new clients. And as you might guess, it includes you know financial information, marketing information, customer lists, uh, uh, information around the organization of the company and management, uh, their backgrounds, and so on. So it's a pretty extensive list, covers a lot of areas, legal requirements, uh, things like that. Um, and we'll store that in this virtual data room, if you will. And there's many providers of virtual data rooms. Uh, uh, you know, you can use something like Box.com or Intralinks Escape, or Dropbox, all those kinds of things. Yeah, there's there there are different versions with different uh, features and capabilities. Some of them are very advanced. Actually, they will actually tell you uh, uh, who's actually accessing the data room, what information is being looked at, and that sort of thing. So they they've got those kinds of uh, very advanced capabilities. But what it allows us to do is to not have to, when we're sending, you know, when we're talking to several buyers, as an example, and if they're all looking for the same data, to not to have to send out, you know, 50 emails with all those email attachments. Um, and like you said, that's a, there's a, some security issues there um, and, and so on. So putting this information in one uh, virtual repository, if you will, uh, that people can access it on demand is certainly helpful. And I assume you have the ability to have this be highly secure and that, as you said, you know who looked at it, how long they looked at it, what they did look at, and what they didn't look at, probably more importantly, is this information downloadable or just viewable? Uh, you know, it, it, can, it depends on how you set it up because some, some are so secure they'll only let you look at it on a screen. In fact, one level of security, not to, not to go down a, a side road here, but I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's one organization that actually has a, a, a type of security that's so tight that you actually have to have your cursor over the different words, the different sentences in the document. So it doesn't even allow someone to take a screenshot of the, uh, of the screen. Uh, and so it can be that secure. Others can be less secure and allow someone to download the information that, uh, you know, that it's appropriate to be downloaded. Um, so we can set that up. We can, we can vary that by client and by sensitivity of to the information. But it's, a, it's just a great tool from an efficiency point of view, from a security point of view and, and whatnot. And, you know, we can't imagine uh, going back to the old days of Federal Expressing packages of information with documents to be, be reviewed. Uh, we're all here now. And you talked about the buyer side. This is almost an expectation of at least sophisticated buyers that this information be provided and handled this way because that's what they're used to working with. That's a great answer and a very detailed answer to the question. And I think it's important for our audience to understand that if you're going to be talking to sophisticated buyers, whether it's private equity or family offices or 
your people that are looking at the businesses and your type of business and other types of businesses on a regular basis, this is the expectation. And if you can't meet that expectation, you may not even get a serious look, even though you may have a great business. Yeah, you may not look very sophisticated if you don't have that kind of capability or or hire that kind of capability. So those are, that's some of the services we provide to our clients. I'm interested to see how this turned out. We have a founder here that is getting a little burned out and wants to do other things. And he's got a great business and you've got everything up on your virtual secure data room. And what happens next? Yeah, well, we we you know, we proceeded to go through our process of of getting um, uh, you know serious bidders, uh, and we actually received a number of uh, uh, you know letters of intent LOIs for the company, uh, serious bidders with uh, with uh, offers to the company. Uh, we then proceeded our, our normal step in this process is then to have uh, a select group of them come in and visit the facility, meet with management, go kick the tires on the facility and that sort of thing. And that ex- actually occurred. And we, we, we brought those meetings. We actually had uh, uh, four, uh, four groups come in, uh, met with them all. Uh, we're going through the process of, of skinning down the list from there to choose ultimately one of those. And uh, right at that time is when COVID happened. All the customers shut down. The customers were required to shut their doors and not see new patients. And basically, as you might guess, as business dried up. So when you say the customers, in your case, this is the actual podiatrist or foot doctors and surgeons, orthopedic people that just had to stop seeing people. And so they're not seeing people. They're not ordering orthotics. Right, right. So we... uh we decided proactively at that point in time, it made sense to put the process on hold. And we decided to, uh, this was, uh, you know, kind of in the March, April, 2000, uh, I mean, 2020 timeframe. And we put the process on hold and not knowing how long that was going to be. Um, well, obviously things went on. Uh, those offices then, uh, you know, came back in the fall and started to reopen. Uh, business started to pick up. Uh, and uh, we had seen business then actually go back to uh, the original pre-COVID level of business. And so we started the process back up again. Um, but another thing happened in that in that interim period that was unexpected is one of the key members of management actually uh, was, uh, was involved in an accident and uh, had a, uh, you know, a pretty, at the time, a pretty severe uh, injury uh, that uh, the ultimately the good news is COVID was long enough. That person was able to actually return to work when, op- when the office uh, reopened. So when you have a situation like this, when you say key member of the management team, any buyer that was looking at the business, they would look at that as a real negative if that person was not available or couldn't return to work in the time frame that they would like to see. That would have been a huge problem, right? Absolutely. This person was like a, kind of the number two in the organization. And a result of that, it would have been pretty challenging if they had not been able to return. Um, so with that, you know, those, those two unexpected events occurred uh, during this period of time that we were somewhat out of control of, of, uh, of the fact that COVID shut down the business for a while. Uh, I guess the good news of the story is that um, uh, because our, our we think our preparation was very good, the rest of the uh, the process went pretty smoothly, and we were able to get the business closed uh, in a, in a timely manner. Once we were able to restart the process, um, I think what uh, you know in in my mind, I know uh, one of the things you focus on in your uh, podcast here is what are the what are the takeaways, what are the good things that occurred, or the the, the deal points and things we look for out of this. Obviously, you know, we did our best job to try to eliminate this concept of deal fatigue, but you, you never really know as a business owner, uh, a buyer or a seller, you know, what sort of unexpected events are going to occur. You know, COVID, we hope, is a, a once-in-a-lifetime um, type of an event, but also this injury uh, to one of the key managers is, a, is another type of event that can happen on a more of a micro level. And both those items, you know, could have uh, could have spelled disaster for the company, uh, but they did. They were able to recover, ultimately bring things to a, a closing, uh, successful closing, and uh, we we're you know quite happy for them. Uh, the whole process, though, as a result of those those unexpected delays, ended up taking about 14, 15 months to close, much longer than a typical uh, you know six to nine month uh, closing cycle that we typically see with uh, with most businesses who uh, take their company to market. It's kind of interesting. You mentioned that deal fatigue, and I guess they're just saying out there that time does kill deals and that you have 14, 15, 16 months of the deal flow here because of these unexpected and uncontrollable events that you've been involved in to keep that ball moving down the court. And so you do eventually get across the goal line. 
of getting the deal closed. And I think one of the things that I would like our audience to think about, and as a key takeaway here, is this two concepts that you mentioned and explained very well, and that is deal fatigue, which is real. Uh, it's an emotional, psychological type of uh, weariness that settles into a founder or the management team by the what is seemingly endless uh, request for due diligence. And then after all the due diligence is presented, then they will want more due diligence, even deeper dives. And sometimes the nitpicking and requests for additional information become real frustrating and especially entrepreneurs that have controlled their business for a long time and are used to making decisive decisions that just drives them batty. Uh, and they just want to throw up their hands and walk away. Right. And uh, so deal fatigue is really a serious issue. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of deals on an annual basis throughout the country that uh, crater and don't get closed because right. of the simple fact of deal fatigue. And one of the things that I think that you've done well and explained well here is that your preparation of having that information available and anticipating what a buyer and some very sophisticated buyers are going to want to see and getting that information prepared to in advance provides confidence to a buyer that the company is well run, the information is available, and the type of requests that you get tend to be with more preparation and information available the more nuisance-oriented due diligence requests aren't as frequent and aren't as voluminous as sometimes when you're scrambling to put together the information. Yep, well said. I think that is really key here. And that time does kill deals. And if you don't have your documents and your due diligence well formatted and ready for consumption by a buyer, it will drag out the process. And a key injury can really take the deal off the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't have to happen. This is very controllable. That's one thing you can control is the preparation and the amount of due diligence you provide. So that's a great takeaway, Michael. And I appreciate your detailed description of this. So Josh, why don't we jump over to you and have you share a transaction that might benefit those listening in here that had its challenges, but eventually got closed. Sure. So this is a company that's in the durable medical equipment space. So why don't you define that, what, what that really means for those that may not be familiar with those terms? Sure. The, their, their primary product offering was CPAPs and BiPAPs, uh, you know, that individuals would use while sleeping uh, to, to help their breathing. Maybe they have sleep apnea or something like that. And uh, these are devices that, uh, you know, you would get after visiting a sleep clinic uh, the doctor would prescribe them for you after a sleep study, uh, and this company would go into the home, train you on the device, set it up for you, and, and help make sure that it works properly on a go-forward basis. So we got into these. Uh, we got introduced to these owners through a wealth advisor, who had indicated that his client was talking to uh, a variety of buyers, and he felt that they needed help. Uh, but so far, they hadn't solicited outside advice. So was the motivation for selling because they being approached by companies that were looking to acquire them? and Or were they motivated out seeking to sell the company? They were uh, taking inbound inquiries. They weren't actively out there promoting or trying to get their company sold. People were just picking up the phone and calling them. There has been a massive amount of outreach to business owners like we've never seen in our careers, uh, whereby private equity groups, uh, business brokers, investment banks, uh, you name it, these individual uh, business owners are getting uh, approached from all angles, uh, some multiple times per day. Well, that's interesting. And that's being driven by, what do you think? Is it the strength of the economy, even in a weak uh, COVID, post-COVID environment? or the availability of financing to be able to acquire companies or the low interest rates or just what what's driving that do you think yes <laughs> all the above it's, huh? uh, it's <laughs> it's about all those i mean i think uh if, if i had to point to a few um you know i i think it's i, I think it's excess supply of capital when you look at the amount of cash sitting uh you know that has been raised by private equity groups that is sitting on corporate balance sheets. That's probably the primary driver. Certainly low interest rates 
are, are helping that. I think many businesses are performing very well. Um, so, so we're seeing, uh, you know, kind of healthy environments, if you will, with which to invest. So there's, there's a lot of dynamics at play, but I would say the largest part of it is just excess supply of capital. That's an interesting point that our audience should perk up and take notes on is that this situation is unusual. It hasn't existed very many times in the last few decades, three or four decades, uh, that some of our listeners have been in business and, Sometimes timing is everything. And if you can, if you have a great business, maybe now is the time to actually think about positioning your company for an exit because the excess availability of capital may not be a long-term event. It may dry up. For those that have been in business a while, you can think back uh, 10, 15 years ago when uh, the Great Recession starting in 2007 and 8, uh, there was no availability of capital. And if you were going to sell your business in that time frame, you ended up carrying substantially all of the purchase price in some cases versus virtually being unable to get it financed. Something to consider as you think about how business conditions evolve and change and sometimes can change very quickly. Yeah, absolutely agree. So we got inbound queries, people banging on the door, say, sell me your company. I'm ready to write a check. And and a wealth advisor referred you to these folks. What was the next few things that happened to get the business ready for sale? So they uh, so they had actually already accepted an offer by the time we met them. So did they have someone like yourself advising them or they just tried to do it themselves? They did it themselves. This is kind of a do-it-yourself type of transaction, right? This was a do-it-yourself job. Absolutely. And uh, so, so they were fairly far down the road. So that means they set the letter of intent and they were in the due diligence process and all that stuff. Signed letter of intent, uh, weeks, you know, days or or short weeks from closing. And um, they had gotten the inkling that their business was performing better than it was um, and kind of in concert with with, uh, some of their advisors and us. Uh, telling them that they should run a formal process, they decided to back away from from that offer. So when you say run a formal process, what does that mean? That means hire a firm like us, uh, spend time on the front end getting organized and developing a list of of the most likely buyers, uh, developing a confidential information memorandum, really describing that business in detail. Uh, oftentimes doing sell-side due diligence uh, on the financial statements. So sell-side due diligence, uh, kind of elaborate on that term. That's something that hasn't been mentioned too frequently on the podcast here. Sure. So um, all buyers are going to uh, engage a third-party accountant to come in and go through the numbers almost in an audit-like fashion to really validate uh, the, the quality of the financials, the accuracy, uh, you know, that there's been no change in accounting policy, um, really understand what is the cash flow that the business has generated? Uh, what are those earnings that a buyer is going to expect to receive uh, on a go forward basis? You're doing this up front, meaning that you're expecting what a buyer is going to want to see and seller side due diligence and preparation is really uh, getting that all teed up. Yep. And, and this is a perfect example of that. So our client was marketing themselves uh, in in the high threes of EBITDA. And uh, they were cash basis uh, reporting. Uh, so, so they were just reporting as cash came in. Um, you know, they, they had had some ebbs and flows in terms of, of revenue and price changes and, and labor changes and uh, cost of goods sold uh, variances and, and all kinds of noise kind of coming through the financial statements. And we articulated to them the benefit of doing sell-side diligence is it really provided us a firm EBITDA with which to negotiate. So just define EBITDA for our audience here. Sure. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's really uh, you know the, the key metric with which buyers use uh, to to calculate purchase price and to calculate you know what it is uh, that they're going to receive on an earnings basis uh, going forward. So you mentioned something that I perked up when you said it was that they were cash basis reporting, which 
so many companies get started. They start with cash basis and they start with QuickBooks. And sometimes they just hang in there with that. Even though they're doing tens of millions of dollars of revenue, they're still haven't evolved their accounting system to change and keep up with more accurate type of accounting that a buyer is going to want to see, which is probably accrual. And I would imagine the type of buyer that would be looking at this business would be looking for that type of information. Yeah. So, um, so as we went through the process on this quality of earnings report, we, we understood that they had a price change, uh, on their, on their CPAPs uh, that, that they implemented, which, which increased margins. We understood that they had um, started uh, picking up product in the field, maybe where a client had passed away or didn't qualify to use the device anymore. Whereas historically, they, they weren't as efficient in terms of picking up uh, unused equipment. So there's thir- certain things that they were doing that allowed the business um, to, to, not fully show the increase in profitability that that had been seen on a monthly basis, but had not yet been in a full 12-month financial look. So as we went through that process, our EBITDA was was in the the, uh, vicinity of $6 million uh, that we were able to take to market. That was after you've gone through and made adjustments in the accounting to adequately reflect that type of financial performance, correct? Correct. We also went through and did, you know, probably a 50 page uh, confidential memorandum, really describing the business, telling the story, uh, helping a buyer understand uh, what this might mean in terms of either for the strategic buyers, you know, those, those industry buyers, how this might be beneficial for them to acquire and for financial buyers like private equity groups, what were the attributes um, that would make this a good investment? So we went through that process. Uh, I think in total, we went to about 120 buyers. Um, I think we had about 60 uh, some odd sign a confidentiality agreement. And we got around 15, what we would call expressions of interest. And through that process, uh, our, express, our expressions of interest varied. Uh, you know, Some were as, as low as the high 20s. High 20s of what? Are we talking? Dollars. I'm sorry. Dollars. Purchase price dollars. So we're talking high 20 million. Million. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, the offer that they had accepted and declined was in the low 20s. So on the do-it-yourself program that they were running, they were in this ballpark of the 20 million range, 21, 22, 23 million, the low 20s. And uh, I'm kind of interested to see how much of an impact applying the process that you've described, how that changed that number. So why don't you continue sharing how this transaction evolved and progressed? And I'm really intrigued to see how this is going to end. Sure, sure. So we we continued forward in the process and... Um, we, we ended up signing a letter uh, w- with a, a financial buyer uh, in, in the low 40s. Um, so again, we were in the low 20s. Uh, now we're in the low 40s. So we're talking basically double, going from the low... Pretty close to double. Uh, low 20s, 20 million to the low 40s, $40 million of actual sales price. Absolutely. And as you might expect... Uh, you know the the uh, owners of the business were feeling pretty good about their decision to uh, to to back away and <laughs> and kind of go about this uh, in a formal fashion. Um, as we moved forward, big difference, big yeah. difference. So so there's a few twists and turns yet. So um, as we move forward, we ran into a situation where um, our client had actually been investigated by uh, the office of the inspector general. And if you know anything about what that means, uh, th- this is something... I have no clue what that means. Well, th- this is not a good thing, Marvin. This is not a good thing. This is... Uh... <laughs> it sounds odd in this. <laughs> sounds like Inspector Crusoe. <laughs> well, this is, uh, I don't know, mm. one step removed from the FBI. How's that? Um, so, so they had actually been investigated for potential fraud. And it was something that had popped up before COVID um, that kind of through COVID, they had forgotten about, you know, all of us operating in this COVID environment, 
Um, you know, this, this audit had, had, uh, you know, they, they'd stopped asking questions the, the company had kind of forgotten about it and kind of, as they were being asked questions in due diligence, this cropped back up. Well, um, it, 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 what it turned out to be was really a paperwork issue that the form uh, for some of the, the compliance uh, for Medicaid um, was not, uh, it, it was not on the proper document. It was actually the right information, but it was just not on the proper document. Um, and, and, you know, we didn't have any confirmation that this OIG audit had completed. And it really caused the buyer to have concern about kind of what the what the industry risks were, um, you know, some dynamics as it related to to uh, kind of compliance. And we ended up not being able to move forward with that buyer. Oh, I, I bet you had some uh, sellers here that were crestfallen. They were so uh, so. It was really a process to kind of you know take some steps back, get recalibrated on the process. Um, you know, we, we really try hard to keep our clients level, right? We really try to take as much of the, the brunt of, of uh, changes or of, of work. Uh, and this was one of those times where we were really trying to kind of help keep them even in terms of, you know, where we could ultimately get this transaction completed. So while they really liked the idea of partnering with a private equity group, continuing to maintain some level of ownership, this event really caused us to focus on strategic buyers because they would understand some of the industry risks, right? They would understand kind of the, the documentation, the paperwork, you know, all the things that kind of uh, came with being in the industry. So we went back to uh, strategic buyers. We, we went back to the, the three that were in the process, solicited offers, let them know that, that we had no longer been under uh, exclusivity. Um, one of the buyers was the buyer that they were originally under letter of intent with before we met them. Okay, so I just want to make sure I understand this. So when they were under the do-it-yourself program, they had an inbound inquiry from a strategic buyer, and they had gone as far as getting a tentative offer on the table, which once you got involved, that that buyer went away. And so you're now back, going back to your strategic buyers, and they're still interested at this point. They are still all very interested. We called the uh, COO of this business, which was publicly traded, who had been our primary contact through the transaction. This was a, a, a deal that they were really sad to lose when we went with the private equity group. We ended up going under letter of intent with them in the low 40s. They committed to a prompt closing. Uh, they allowed our clients to maintain, uh, or I should say, uh, get some stock uh, in the business, not only um, not, not only cash. Um, and uh, we were moving forward very swiftly. The, the, some of these strategic buyers, Marvin, really are machines. They have an army of people. They have a very uh, uh, proven and, and regimented process. And uh, they moved very swiftly. We were set to close uh, in about two and a half, three weeks. And there was a major industry recall uh, on CPAPs. And our sales trickled. Uh, I mean, it, 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 we, we were growing meaningfully. and Our sales really <laughs> trickled uh, right before closing. So I, I can see your buyers pulling their hair out saying, what next? Oh, our client... <laughs> I mean, I felt so bad. I mean, what a challenge, right? So now we're all worried that this recall is going to impact the transaction. The long and short of it is the buyer closed on time. They were a very large national buyer. Uh, we filled a hole in their footprint uh, that, that, that was an important geography for them. Uh, and, and the deal closed on time as promised. Even during the recall, because they were strategic, they're in the industry, they understood the dynamics of what that meant and didn't mean where a financial buyer not in the industry might not have seen. I, I would tell you there is a 0% chance we would have closed with a financial buyer at that point in the deal. It, it would not have happened. Um, so there was a huge benefit that we had made that decision you know, a, a number of weeks ago at the time to go and focus only on strategics because of the deal certainty that they would have provided. Um, 
we moved forward, we closed, uh, and, and our client, you know, at, at the closing dinner, you know, just, just hearing them talk about the difference in the process and the value that was created. Let's quantify that value. You went from, I'm just going to pick a number. You said low 20s. I'm going to pick uh, 21 million. And you closed in the low 40s. And so I'm going to say 41 million. So there's basically a $20 million delta swing in actual money that was transferred into their bank account just because of your involvement. Because the, on the do-it-yourself program, they would have taken a low 20 from the same buyer. They would have been thrilled to close it at 21, 22 million. And now they're paying plus 40 million and they're still probably happy. They right? were, they were thrilled. Um, I mean, this, this was within a, 12 to 14 month period uh, that, that that offer changed that much. And everybody on both sides of the table felt very good about the end result. Well, I think there's a lot of great takeaways here, Josh, on this the discussion about availability of capital sitting on the sidelines on corporate balance sheets. I think that's huge that that has such an impactful strategic component to buyers and sellers now that the seller should recognize that that situation may not forever be and that it, situations like that can dry up that source of capital very quickly. And more importantly, this whole idea of having the right advisors around you that understand the process and can tweak the difference between a strategic and a financial buyer and, you know, bring some perspective to the always challenging deal flow and the issues that come up. Someone that's been through it before, understands it, can keep level-headed thinking in the transaction so the transactions don't fall apart. I think this has been a phenomenal story and I appreciate you sharing it with us here today. A lot of entrepreneurs listening to the podcast often share their thoughts and concerns with me about where they are in the preparation process as they get ready for an eventual exit. One of the biggest fears I hear is how their business value can be maximized when it comes time to sell. I have prepared a report that outlines how any entrepreneur can literally double the amount of money they put in their pocket when it comes time to sell their business. While this may seem like a brash claim, nevertheless, it's true. If you do the right things, the key is knowing what to do and when. To get your free report, just go to www.businessexitstories.com to get your report. Again, that's www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report to get your free report, and I'll make sure that it's forwarded on to you. Uh, so why don't we just uh, jump back to Michael here. Why don't you share a transaction with us, Michael? Yeah, thanks. This one actually comes from a different, somewhat different point of view. I was previously a partner with a venture capital firm prior to my time in investment banking, as I mentioned briefly in my intro. And in that regard, we made investments in early stage companies uh, with hopes to uh, sell them uh, at a much higher number. And one of the companies that we had invested in was the area of pet health insurance. And so some people might have heard of pet health insurance. It basically is a way to cover your veterinary bills for your uh, dog or cat. Usually it's dogs. Um, and uh, you know the, the cost of uh, keeping a pet is getting more expensive. And this is a way to spread that, uh, spread that cost out through, uh, through uh, pet health insurance. And it's actually quite popular in parts of Europe, as an example. And we, we saw it coming to the U.S. And so we made an investment in a company in this space with hopes to grow it. And the company had been growing nicely. Uh, one day, being the the, the partner, uh, meaning the investor in this company, we received a call from a large international insurance company who had said, we've studied the market, uh, pet health insurance, and particularly in the U.S., and we we want to enter this market. Uh, and we've, we've, we've chosen your firm to enter through, and we want to you know, acquire the company. So we went through the typical process of uh, introducing them to the company. Uh, they came back with a uh, you know, preliminary indication that of, a, of a, a price that we thought was acceptable for the company, was aligned with where it was market-wise. But the one sticking point was the fact that they really didn't do a great job of, uh, of identifying how the uh, owner, you know, the minority owner slash managers of the firm, the president and the vice president of the organization, who are going to be staying on with the company going forward would be taken care of. 
Um, this is, as I said, a, a large international company who had probably you know tens of thousands of employees, and uh, you know they were trying to they were struggling with how do they deal with these entrepreneurs that were going to be running this this small unit over here that were going to be so important going forward. Well, their hesitancy uh, allowed a secondary bidder to come into the question. We had held out from signing a letter of intent until we could get some clarity around uh, uh, around uh, this issue. Because typically when you sign a letter of intent with somebody, it involves going exclusive with them, meaning that you only work with them and you don't look at other bidders at that point in time. So we had not signed that because uh, we, uh, we didn't have this issue around uh, the compensation and benefits for the key managers worked out. And their hesitancy, and it took weeks and weeks for them to try to get back to us with, uh, with how they're going to do this, uh, allowed another bidder to jump in the process. Another bidder came in actually through one of the shareholders of the company. He had told a friend who had actually recently, an individual who'd recently exited his insurance company and was interested in making another investment in the insurance industry. It was a really qualified individual, not a company, but just a person, a well, a high net worth in, individual who through the, the sale of their company had done quite well and had uh, a cash flow to be able to make an investment like this. And uh, that bidder came up ultimately and uh, scooped the deal away came up with better price and better terms for uh, for our company. And we were you know quite pleased with the process. Uh, by holding out on the LOI, we were able to uh, you know continue to entertain uh, bidder options, if you will, like we did here. And, uh, and in this regard, it worked out quite well for us. Well, I think the big takeaway here is, is obviously two takeaways, one on the buyer side and one on the seller side. I think the takeaway on the buyer side is that don't drag your feet. You may lose a deal, and good deals are tough to lose. And, you know, this was a large, as you said, international insurance company. It was probably, I'm just guessing here, that probably thousands of employees and a bureaucracy that it just takes forever to get a decision made. And that time lag and trying to get a firm decision cost them the deal because someone else came in and, and was able to move quicker, make decisions faster, and meet the needs of management uh, quicker, and they got the deal. Yep. On the seller side, I think there's a huge takeaway here that understanding really what is important to you as the seller, in this case, it was management, owners of the company, what was important to them, since they were going to be staying on and managing the company, how they were going to be treated, what their compensation was, what their any future equity bonuses and stock options or whatever the compensation package was going to be and ownership packages was going to be. That was important to them. Until that was dressed, they did not sign this letter of intent. So often a letter of intent is offered and people just sign it and it ties them up and they have exclusivity for a 45, 50, 60, 90 day period of time mm -hmm. for the due diligence to be performed. And because they didn't have their needs met, they didn't sign that exclusivity, that LOI, and that allowed them the opportunity to entertain other deals. And in fact, in this case, because the buyer was dragging his feet, they entertained another deal and they got a much better deal from what you're telling me. They got a much better deal from a buyer that was very responsive to their needs. And and so I think that's a huge takeaway. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, you, you hit it right on the head. It's uh, that uh, hesitancy and the ability to close quickly and definitively uh, was uh, what uh, helped win the uh the new buyer, the the opportunity to, to to go with the company, and since that time, the company's done very well, uh, grown substantially. Uh, it's been a great investment as a as a venture capital investment. We did quite well on it. We we're very pleased with our results, and so it was a uh, really, I guess, I'll say a win 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 result. Uh, investors, managers, and uh, buyers uh, as a result, and uh, it's a it's a great story as it turns out. But uh, but it just came about from uh, like you said the. Uh, the hesitancy or lack of decision uh, of, a, of a large company sometimes. And then more importantly for sellers that are listening in here, when you sign that letter of intent and tie that exclusivity period of 60, 90 days or whatever that period is, you cannot go out and talk to other people. And in this case, they didn't get those key components satisfied 
that before they signed that letter of intent, so they didn't sign it. Yep. Uh, and for them, it turned out to be a huge plus. So just something to put in your little box of tips and hints that you picked up from the podcast here that may make a huge difference down the road. Well, we're going to wrap up with you, Josh. Why don't you share one final transaction with us and give us a great takeaway? Sure. So um, this is a transaction in the uh, plumbing, in the in what we would describe as the home services space. So one interesting thing that's kind of gone on through COVID is uh, there's been a, a, a meaningful focus on home services and, and really anything that performed well through COVID. But I think what you'll see is anything that has a service element to it, think uh, plumbing or HVAC or pest control or uh, you know even pool services, any of those types of things have really performed well. And um, we took a business to market that was a, a plumbing contractor that, you know, I would have told you uh, three or four years ago, you know, probably would have traded for about half of, of what we ended up selling it for um, just because of the resiliency those businesses showed through COVID. And um, but 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 the, the story really isn't about kind of the attractiveness of the home services space. What it is is it's a story about the attractiveness of being able to reinvest equity alongside a buyer. And so this is a process that we ran a, a, a um, pretty wide, you know, like the one I described earlier, a pretty formal and, and pretty wide process on. And um, we ultimately ended up selecting a private equity firm that had established a platform. So um, what I mean by platform is they had uh, acquired one plumbing business uh, and they had added on to it uh, two other plumbing businesses at the time. And they were uh, also looking to get into the HVAC space. And um, we were a business that, that they acquired. Our client reinvested uh, proceeds alongside that private equity buyer. I just want to make sure that we understand when you say reinvest proceeds, unpack that a little bit for our audience. What does that mean? Just give us some not real numbers, perhaps, but talking a million dollars, if the business sold for a million dollars, which I'm sure was a lot more than that, but what did they reinvest on a percentage basis? Sure. So, so let's, let's just use $10 million for, for this conversation. Um, what, what is interesting for us is many times, uh, you know, in all of our deals, and again, probably another, another plug as to why to use an advisor. Um, we we ensure our clients invest on the same basis as a private equity group or or as a buyer, right? That the, the class of stock is the same, uh, the the value of, of how to calculate their equity percentage is the same. All of those things are on like basis with the private equity group coming in. As part of that. You know, almost think of the analogy as a home mortgage, right? If if you have a home worth a million dollars, and and you buy a you get a mortgage for for eighty percent, uh, the equity in your home is two hundred thousand dollars. It's very similar for a business. So in this situation, let's say the business is worth ten million dollars. That buyer, let's say, puts five million dollars of debt on the business. The equity value of that business is $5 million. So in this situation, our client had a business worth 10 million. He decided to reinvest a million dollars. For that million dollars, he owned 20% of the business. Based on the $5 million of equity. Correct. Exclusive of debt. Okay. Correct. So, so he took off 9 million of proceeds, reinvested one, right? So, so to, 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 to a total of 10, you know, before fees and taxes and everything. Um, we always make sure that our client has the ability to reinvest on a tax deferred basis. So that means that they would not be paying any tax at the time of that reinvestment. So this client reinvested his, uh, his, his million dollars. Um, that private, so, so the deal closed, um, you know, he continued in his role, became part of this large organization. Um, that private equity firm got approached by a larger private equity firm to buy this plumbing and HVAC platform. Literally within six months, 
the value of our client's equity was three and a half million dollars in this scenario. Time out here so we can follow the numbers. A lot of numbers flying around here. So you, you have a $10 million transaction, $5 million in debt put on to finance the deal. Private equity was going to put up $5 million, but your client, uh, the seller, left a million dollars into the entity. And so he had 20% of the $5 million. So he got, with his $1 million, uh, 20% of $5 million is $1 million. And so that one million dollars turned into you say three and a half million? Three and a half million. In less than a year? Less than a year. And because a larger private equity firm came along and made the acquisition. Of the entire platform. So his business was one of one of several that this group had acquired. Now that's a phenomenal story. So he decided <laughs> so Marvin, it gets better. They wanted uh, as many of the operators of these plumbing businesses or HVAC businesses, as the case may be, to stay in, to continue to have that aligned interest. He got a look at the strategy, understood where this private equity group intended to take this platform. He said, I'm leaving all my chips on the table. Fast forward another, I don't know, eight, 18-ish months, 12, 12 to 18-ish months. That equity is, is worth in the vicinity of $7 million today. And it has only grown. Um, this, this platform is really doing a lot of acquisitions, is growing meaningfully. I can't tell you for sure uh, you know, what he's ultimately going to walk away with in the, in the next transaction. Um, but I think it has every bit of the, of the opportunity to be as much as he sold the company for originally. Okay. So I... <laughs> I don't want to be redundant here, but this is a great story of, you know, getting a second, third, and maybe a fourth bite out of the same apple. So he leaves a million dollars in, it turns into three and a half million. Someone comes along and buys that, and that three and a half million is now worth seven million. And so for that million has turned into seven million. And you're saying maybe the next acquisition that comes along is going to be worth 10 million or more. And so he's literally taking a $10 million sale and turn it into a $20 million sale. Sure has. Uh, that is a phenomenal story of what is really possible if you understand the strategy of your buyer and you leave equity in the deal. Yeah. I, I think that many clients that we first meet are those owner operators, founder owners that, that are a little timid about what rolling equity with a buyer really means, uh, you know, particularly since they're not going to have control, you know, 51% of the ownership going forward. Uh, and we really try to urge our clients. I, I mean, Marvin, we, Michael and I could go through, you know, story after story. Uh, you know, that, that one's a neat one because it's, it's you know, transacted a few times. It's, it's continuing as we speak. It, it is. And, and yeah. given the space that it's in, but but I mean, we I mean we have another one where our, our client's initial equity was he, he put in three million and four years later walked away with fifty. Fifty, five zero. Five zero. <laughs> so some of these, some of these opportunities, because the the many of our clients, right, they get to a certain point, 60 years old, 50 years old, where they just don't have the same tolerance for risk they did when they were 25. So by virtue of that, to some extent, they're holding back these businesses that could otherwise materially grow. And what we find is in the right situations with the right buyers, the, 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 the initial transaction really is a catalyst for growth because now that owner is still involved, but has a much higher tolerance for risk because they've taken 80% of their chips off the table and put them in the market or the bank or wherever. And so their tolerance for risk has gone up um, because they're really saying, how do I shoot for three times my money, five times my money, you know, whatever those right numbers are uh, that the buyer is focused on. So um, it can be something that's really powerful. It certainly needs to be structured the right, the right way. And, um, you know, we've got to do our due diligence on buyers, but in the right situation, it is really compelling. Well, great takeaway, what can happen if you leave equity into a deal and you understand the strategy and are comfortable with it. But I think another important thing that you mentioned there 
is that tolerance for risk can hold a business back. Someone makes a decision when they're 25, 30, 35 years old. It's entirely different when they're 55, 60, 65 years old. Not the same tolerance for risk and that that can really hold a company back and new ownership coming in that, you know, has a bigger appetite and the resources to grow a company can really ramp the growth and the value of that company up. And if you leave equity into it, you can go on for one very profitable ride. Great takeaway, Josh. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, we're kind of wrapping it up here for today. It's been some great stories and great takeaways for those that are listening in today. So this is Marvin L. Storm for Business Exit Stories. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.